Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Crystal Tai. Crystal is a highly accomplished senior managing editor at Jing Daily, a leading media platform with a strong focus on China, luxury, retail, lifestyle, and digital consumption trends. As an experienced journalist, she has gained acclaim for her insightful coverage of the intricate relationship between business and sociocultural dynamics across Asia. Her distinguished writing has graced the pages of reputable publications including The Guardian, Women's Wear Daily, and SCMP, South China Morning Post, among others. In our conversation with Crystal, we discuss her impressive journalism career and significant contributions at Jing Daily. We touch on the captivating world of K-pop, the rich tapestry of South Korean culture, and the ever-evolving Chinese consumption trends. Crystal shares stories from her experiences reporting on K-pop, including her daring infiltration of a K-pop training academy. She sheds light on the profound influence of K-pop and South Korean culture on global music, beauty, and fashion trends. We also explore the dynamic fashion landscape in China, highlighting the pivotal role played by the social media platform Xiaohongshu. Additionally, we delve into the burgeoning phenomenon of remote work and digital nomadism in China, highlighting its rapid use and impact on the professional landscape. We conclude our conversation by discussing some of the steps the Chinese government has undertaken to address the working conditions in China. Enjoy. The ABG aesthetic or style, as ridiculous as it might sound, Asian baby girl, it actually goes back to the whole kind of legacy of Chinese American or Chinese North American integration or or the fostering of like the the modern Chinese American identity. Some people say that this term actually came together in the 1990s and was influenced by the involvement of Chinese Americans or overseas Asians in kind of their their involvement in African American culture and in kind of seeking to emulate this gangster look. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under-30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Crystal, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hey, Todd. It's good to be here. All right. So where in the world are you that we're recording you from today? I am in beautiful Vancouver, BC. Tell us a little bit about your journalism career and the path that led you to end up at your current position with Jing Daily. So a lot of my work is actually centered around themes of home, identity, and belonging. And I think that just stems from a personal curiosity, really, um, because growing up, you know, as a Chinese-Canadian immigrant in Canada, I had a lot of questions about notions of, like, Chineseness, like, for instance, what it meant to be a Hong Konger, especially within the context of like Hong Kong and China, um, and also what it meant to be Canadian. 
So just growing up in these kind of post-colonial regions, you know, one, one former colony, one commonwealth, um, lots of, lots of questions about identity and yeah. And, and like home again, as I mentioned. Um, so I, I moved to Hong Kong in 2010 to work in media. And, um, since then I've dabbled in magazines in, um, in uh, newspapers and digital platforms. And I lived in Hong Kong and Seoul, where I reported on everything from K-pop to plastic surgery, you know, North Korea, those were the big kind of topics at the time. I want to actually start there with uh, your time and your experience in South Korea. Um, I know, and I when I was looking you up a little bit, uh, it was interesting the way that you talked about the K-pop experience because what did you say? You infiltrated like the behind the scenes or the backstage or something of of the formation of a new K-pop group or something like that. And you can correct <laughs> me and I want you to, but tell us about that experience and how right or wrong I was about the way I just explained that. And, and then about the rise of K-pop as this cultural phenomenon. Sure. I'd love to. Technically I infiltrated a K-pop training academy. So this ah. was basically a space where trainees um, or K-pop students between the ages of six to 26 would go and attend everything from dance to singing and um, music uh, instrument playing type. Yeah. Practices to uh, even like visual practices. Basically that, that means just looking in a mirror and kind of perfecting your poses or like facial expressions. So I, I went to a K-pop training academy um, as a journalist to observe some of these uh, these practices and, and events. And I also got, got to sit in on an audition, which was fascinating. Okay. So tell us about K-pop in general, from your point of view, as this global cultural phenomenon that it seems to be today. I would say that K-pop is maybe part of like a larger K-wave, which which is comprised of um, like the K-fashion, K-beauty, even like K-food, K-dramas, especially all mm. of this has kind of been ri- rising altogether as, as part of like a larger K-wave phenomenon since the mid 2000s. Um, but K-pop in itself, I would argue, is not just a genre of music or even a cultural movement. It's ultimately a cultural technology as my, my source, uh, sociologist Michael Hurt often puts it in that, like, it's this very finely tuned, um, very, yeah, finely tuned, finely calibrated work of artistry that it just, it, it's so well produced. It's immaculate. It's like everything down to not just the music, but the choreography as well. Um, and they only work with the best in the industry too. Um, K-pop draws a lot of influences from African-American culture, but also um, they work with like the songwriters who are behind like Britney Spears' biggest hits. You know, they they basically are very, again, a very finely tuned kind of um, cultural technology at the end of the day. How would you say K-pop or even South Korean culture has influenced music, beauty, 
fashion trends around the world? They've been hugely influential um, in, in so many different ways. I think you could maybe trace the first mainstream, kind of the, the global mainstream rise of K-pop back to um, Gangnam Style, which came out mm. I think, in 2012. Um, that was more Sigh. of like a... Yeah, but it it wasn't quite being taken seriously at the time. It was more gimmicky. It was more kind of tongue in cheek. You know, everybody everybody look at this. Um, this well, that was man dancing around. Yeah, it was. So he kind of broke. I guess he broke out. But then, for others to break the mold and to really um, cement K-pop as its own as as something bona fide and you know to be taken seriously, I think. Um, that later happened more with groups like BTS and Blackpink, um, who've since led K-pop into the mainstream. And I would argue that the defining moment um, for K-pop was probably when BTS spoke at the UN in around 2018. Okay. But yes, alongside K-pop, other K-industries like K-beauty, um, K-dramas, K-fashion, again, K-food have been on the rise globally. So brand Korea is very strong. However, I do think it's also worth noting that um, while, you know, the K-wave is gaining momentum around the world, it is also losing traction in one of its biggest former markets, which is China. Okay, why? I have to ask. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's fascinating because China has basically imposed a kind of um, wide ranging entertainment crackdown uh, across you know, the entertainment industry on everything from celebrity and fandom culture to um, cracking down on influencers who are committing acts of like tax evasion to um, trying to abolish the image of like so-called effeminate men and abnormal aesthetics. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, on top of that, though, um, Korea and China have been entangled in this contentious uh, kind of row over um, the U.S.'s THAAD missile base being based in South Korea, um, the terminal high-altitude area uh, defense missile missile system, which the U.S. set up in South Korea. Um, And China has not been happy with that since, I mean, since 2016. So there has been kind of a de facto ban imposed on Korean cultural imports, like including everything from K-pop to K-dramas. And, you know, over the years, actually, China has been building up its own um, plethora of like cultural offerings now. Like they have their own Chinese former K-pop idols like Jackson Wang or Victoria Song from FX, who are now based out of like the motherland um, and kind of pursuing these, these lucrative uh, second wind careers back home. So, so we might see something like C pop on, on the horizon. um, If you know what I mean. And I think that it is akin to China's penchant to make sure that homegrown whatever, whether it's technology, search engine, social, e-commerce, that the homegrown has 
a lot of room to run to be established leader in that market. Um, they will protect its own. I think China is very well aware of its GDP, its market size, its influence, and it would typically prefer for homegrown, thus he may be home controlled, to be uh, the incumbent in a lot of industries. And potentially we're seeing that in things like music, influencer marketing, or even fashion and beauty. Would you comment to that? Yeah, um, that's, I mean, a lot of countries tend to be a bit protectionistic when it comes to their, their, uh, I guess, local products or, or what they can offer back to the domestic consumer. But China especially, I believe their GDP growth um, was only 0.8% uh, in Q2 of this year, which is quite sluggish compared with like the last couple of quarters, um, a lot weaker than what was indicated uh, or what... It was forecasted. What, um, yeah, what, what a lot of, um, I guess, what sorry, a lot weaker than what everyone was expecting mm -hmm. with the reopening of China post-COVID. It's been a measured approach. I think they're, 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 they're stepping carefully. They're still moving forward, uh, but I think they're doing it uh, with more purpose and intent, and that, that is necessarily a little bit more uh, slow than, than usual. And you're right. I would not want to call out China for doing anything different than what all other countries do as well. Tell me that there hasn't been a push for made in Canada or made in the USA or made wherever everybody, you know, a lot of countries do promote and yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Why wouldn't you? Why shouldn't you? Um, you're there to take care of your own first and foremost, and that's what it's about. So um, you can't blame them at all for doing that. And, and I, I certainly don't either. Let's move on to, to Jing Daily, um, and they put out an excellent reporting on lifestyle trends in China. Tell us a little bit about uh, the background of Jing Daily, first of all, so people know what it is, and then you know a little bit about the mission, what the readership looks like, etc. So Jing Daily started as a project, actually based out of New York back in 2009. Our founder was working in the art scene at the time, and he became interested in, in Chinese culture, and he just wanted to explore like the intersection of um, Chinese luxury and, and consumer culture trends. And obviously, there was nothing like Jing Daily out there at the time. There still isn't much reporting being done in this vein, I believe. Um, but I think that you know we started out telling... I think that we started out telling the story of luxury in China, but since then, Jing Daily has evolved to report on a lot of different topics um, within the context of like Chinese consumption and with with an eye on the global Chinese consumer or what this identity is is evolving to become at least. Um, so, for instance, we look at topics such as the future of Chinese beauty or sea beauty, which um, I believe you mentioned earlier. It's a huge trend on TikTok right now. Like people are actually um, doing these sea beauty aesthetic tutorials to kind of emulate the, the, the looks that are popular in China right now um, and, and talking about sea beauty brands. 
And then we also look at topics like fashion in the metaverse and AI, like what that means um, when it comes to, say, AI-generated fashion or images or IPs. Um, And we also examine, of course, like luxury brands, luxury brand performance in China, but also we look at athleisure and wellness. Um, so like brands like Arteryx and Lululemon, how they're performing in China, how they're engaging with the Chinese consumer. And then um, one of our rising pillars for coverage is also sustainability because the Chinese consumer does care about this as well. And um, on the other side, actually, um, not everyone knows this, but Jing Daily also puts together intelligence reports. So we put together white papers um, and deep dives on, for instance, um, the Middle East and China. Like one of our latest reports was, is Middle East, is the Middle East the next China for luxury brands? Uh, looking at uh, Chinese investment in the region as well. And we also have an intelligence unit, which is basically like a bespoke consultancy where we offer or where we do everything from hosting webinars on um, how not to offend the Chinese consumer um, or um, examining movements like like Guochao in China and uh, kind of advising brands on how to get into this, to get on a, to get in on this. Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. One of the pieces that Jing Daily just came out with was a guide to core fashion trends in China. Can I ask you to first explain to the audience quickly, what do you mean by core? (laughs) Sure. I think the core in, in something core just, uh, just comes from I guess from from previous trends like normcore for instance this was a huge fashion and lifestyle trend I think in the early 2010 uh, sorry mid 2010s when everyone was wearing kind of nondescript no label no brand um very like minimalist uh even in terms of like color palette type clothing and then um, some of the other cores that uh, we've since seen kind of on the rise in China include Barbie core, of course, because Barbie, the movie, is a huge uh, cultural phenomenon at this point with, um, I believe Mattel has has more plans for this, actually, with their other IPs. But um, yeah, Barbie core, you know, the rise of this Barbie pink everywhere. And then there's also Gorp core. GORP stands for Good Old Raisins and Peanuts, I believe. Um, so basically, GORP Core is like this, uh, It it's like hike core. It's trail but, mix. Um, it can be, yeah, it's, it's what you wear when you go hiking, when you go on the trails, but it's also since been repurposed for the city, for urban life. So GORP Core is appropriate for city life as well. Um, and then another trend that we, we've we looked into um, is dopamine dressing, which speaks to basically how people around the world and, and in China especially are celebrating the end of the pandemic and um, just uh, expressing themselves with like brighter colors and um, exciting patterns. And this is all... Um, this is all addressed in a story by my uh, my colleague, Juliana Law, by the way. You can check it out on our website. Wow. Okay. Well, I was going to follow that 
core question up with asking you three of your, maybe your favorites in some of these uh, lifestyle, social, cultural trends and how it's reflected in fashion. You called out a couple with the, um, you know, the Barbie movement and the GORP, which I, I, I love. I'm such a fan of that one. Now that I've heard of it, for those of you listening, do not sleep on peanut butter and banana sandwiches with raisins. Just saying. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I do want to explore that a little bit more and, and some of your favorites um, of like broader lifestyle, social, cultural trends that are being reflected in fashion now. Sure. Um, yeah, I, and I agree. Gorpcore is so quintessentially Canadian in a, in a way, like especially here in Vancouver or on the West Coast, you see it everywhere. People wearing their blunt stones. It's all about that athleisure, yoga, um, kind of outdoor tech wear that you, you don't necessarily wear outdoors either. Just wear it to the mall, wear it on, mm -hmm. <laughs> wear it to dinner to get coffee. So what does this look like? Is it like Lara Croft about to go for a hike or like? Gorpcore is pretty diverse. When you think about it, it could encompass like streetwear type looks as well. Like for instance, maybe Morel has done a pair of um, hiking shoes that are also uh, well suited for like the city or for like hype beasts to wear. Um, it could be again, like yoga, yoga wear like athleisure type looks um that are more loungish and it you know combined with like maybe a patagonia um a rain resistant uh jacket or an arteric shell any other trends that are your favorites right now again my my colleague juliana she wrote about clog core as well which is an emerging trend in china so basically this means just um crocs like just slip-on shoes um, are are kind of on the rise. They, you know, they're so they're so ugly that they're fun now. They're no longer seen as ugly. They're they've got their own kind of unique identity at this point. One of the subjects that you cover is the Chinese diaspora. And you recently had a piece on the rise of the Asian baby girl trend in China. Can you comment on the origin of that trend in the diaspora and then its recent adoption in China? Sure. I'd love to comment on this trend. So the ABG, the ABG aesthetic or style, as ridiculous as it might sound, Asian baby girl, it actually goes back to the whole kind of legacy of Chinese American or Chinese North American integration or, or the fostering of like the the modern Chinese American identity. Some people say that this term actually came together in the 1990s and was influenced by African American hip hop culture, by the involvement of Chinese Americans or overseas Asians in kind of their their involvement in African American culture and in kind of seeking to emulate this this gangster look as part of this uh, attempt to subvert the you know, the model minority Asian American image, like of, of this very um, obedient, uh, very hardworking, yeah, Chinese, Chinese American citizen. Is it a personality? Is it just fashion? Is it what is involved in that trend? 
Well, primarily it is just an aesthetic. So not a behavior. Um, (laughs) (laughs) there used to be this, there was this, um, before crazy rich Asians before this, this show was ahead of its time. There was a reality TV show on YouTube. I think you can still find it called, um, was it like the ultra rich Asians of Vancouver, ultra rich Chinese of Vancouver. And it basically just, um, profiled the, the lives of these, these Chinese Canadian girls, um, who were partying around Vancouver at the time, but it was yeah, fascinating. Um, I, I suppose it could be connected to certain lifestyles, but it really, it depends on like the context and the specific society that you're talking about, but as an overall kind of trend, like if you're going to talk about it, um, maybe from a more global perspective, then it's primarily an aesthetic. So it's, it's associated with like, say having more of a tan, um, wearing more like intense makeup, um, like, like stronger, uh, eyeliner, very, very kind of deep, dark eyeliner with, um, eyelash extensions, um, lots of bronzer and just street and clubbing inspired outfits as well. And of course having like, uh, like dyed hair because that's that kind of goes against that that can seen as that can be seen as rebellious or was seen as rebellious in Asia until more recently. Is it common to see this type of interplay in fashion trends between the diaspora and China? I think it's become more common recently because Chinese consumers are are more increasingly exposed to Western culture through social media, through entertainment. Um, but I remember even when I lived in Hong Kong in like the early 2010s, like this was less, definitely less of a phenomenon in China at the time. But even in Hong Kong, then um, Abercrombie, uh, brands like American Eagle, like all these very aspirationally American Americana or North American type brands were very popular amongst like the local consumers, at least. Because, you know, there was this uh, desire to come across as maybe more international or having lived abroad or, or having or being a bit more westernized at the time. Not, not amongst everyone, but among like certain facets of the community. What about Xiaohongshu or Little Red Book? How impactful, how important, how influential is it in the Chinese social media ecosystem? Xiaohongshu is hugely influential, especially right now. It's quite unique because it was even ahead of it. It still is ahead of Instagram in terms of like its e-commerce appeal as well. So it's like a social media platform that started out as more of like a Pinterest or, or pinboard type um, app in China that um, you know has since evolved into incorporating more e-commerce um, into its elements as well as like product discovery. Um, it, sorry, it's a combination of like product discovery, um, user-generated content, and e-commerce. So it's, it's got it all. Um, and it's basically one of the best ways to be able to look at emerging, to, to, to delve into emerging trends in China or to better understand them. Like even if you just go into Xiaohongshu and you... Um, you look at the general kind of search um, right away, 
the app will tell you like what's trending. Like, is this keyword on the rise by how many percent or how, how many um, views or, or like the number of like users, uh, sorry, the number of hashtags. It's really, really interesting because like at its heart, you know, it's where people can share their experiences, product reviews, recommendations. Um, but it's also a content uh, creation sharing platform as well, where you can go into, um, go deeper even into your interests, um, go into your interests. And I want to say like, it can be a bit of a blog as well. Would you say the majority of users are using it for tips, for uh, trend watching, for advice on how to wear this or how to apply properly that? Or are they actually there mostly with the intent to shop? And I'm doing this to try to parlay this into asking you, are there Western comparables? Yeah, I think that Xiaohongshu is a platform where people are mostly sharing their product reviews and um, like experience uh, reviews or recommendations. But it's also a way, it's also like a meme, a meme sharing platform in, in a sense, like where people are sharing like um, memes or like kind of these rising trending jokes um, and where they're, they're getting a sense of like different trends. Like for instance, as, as mentioned earlier, Barbie core, like this was on the rise this week. Um, and the app was show at least based on my, my algorithms, it was showing me that Barbie core is a rising trend. And um, a lot of the posts were showing people how different users were celebrating the rise of Barbie core. Like they might be taking uh, a selfie with the Barbie filter, or they might be visiting like the local mall and taking a picture inside of like the kind of Barbie box, um, like a mock-up of like the Barbie toy box. Can, and this may be a technical question, but can you manipulate trends? Can you push trends rather than having trends pulled by the market. Is it possible, let's say for a brand or for Mattel to partner with say mm -hmm. a platform like Xiaohongshu and agree to initiate some favorable algos that help push some trending hashtags or or trends out there um, without them being pulled there by the market itself? That's a really good question. That's like the, the trillion dollar question that every brand wants to, mm -hmm. to ask and, and have answers to, right? Well, I remember back in the day, like let's take music, for example. Outkast had that super famous song called Hey Ya. Okay. It was their first big hit. But the underlying story is quite fantastic how they almost forced the public to like that song because it it did not it kind of scored well but it flopped when it hit the 
you know, the airwaves. But they started manipulating the placement of the song, the timing of the hour on the radio that it played, who was played before it, who was played after it. Um, And they had a lot of data that said it should be outrageously popular song, but it just wasn't. So they started playing with everything they could to manipulate it into the homes and into the ears and the cars of the listeners. And then it suddenly took off. So my question is somewhat behind of like, what is that push pull type of differential um, when it comes to things like fashion and whatnot? Can companies come in and I mean, there's no obviously the Barbie movie created the updraft here that that is now pushing this out there um, and it's become super popular. But uh, I, I'm just curious if you had any thoughts or anything to say on the whether on that push pull type of aspect of what trends become. With regards to music, K-pop fans um and like music fans in general, fans of like, you know, specific artists, like say like Lady Gaga or Taylor Swift have been essentially doing this um, for years now where they, you know, a new single comes out and they rally behind it and they make sure that it hits like number one on like um, iTunes or, or whatever uh, kind of like streaming music platform sales. Um, so that's not when you have, when you have the right fan base or the right kind of rallying numbers behind like a product or brand or launch, then yes, it is probably possible (laughs) to, um, to make it go mainstream and be successful. But, um, in terms of brands, what I've been seeing is that they will partner with KOLs with large followings or targeted followings, um, that are relevant for their, their brand or their product. Um, and they also, you know, similar to like Facebook and Instagram, they can buy like advertising or native ads, um, on these platforms as well. But as for like preferential, like algorithms or like skewing them, I, I haven't heard anything about that. You know, one of the reasons I ask about that is because I feel like there's a trend that's being pushed onto me and I can feel now that it's happening because I want something now that I never thought I would want. And that's a face kini. And I, re- <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know where this urge to get a face kini is, is coming from. I blame the algorithms um, and they know me too well. But can you tell us what is a face kini for those who don't know? And why is it one of the hottest accessories in China this summer? Sure. The face kini has gone through a few different iterations or it's, it's evolved quite a, quite a bit since it first, um, hit the market, but, uh, essentially a face kini, it's almost like a, what is it called? Um, you know, like the Mexican wrestling mask. Yeah. Oh yes. I know. Oh, the famous ones. Is it called a luchador? Yeah. I'm trying to find the name. Yeah. Well, Jack Black was in the movie. He was one of the wrestlers. He did the whole thing. Yeah. Lucha Libre. Ah, Uh, Nacho Libre was the movie. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't watched it yet, but I have seen um, satirical Mexican wrestling. Um, It it was more of like an art. That was Nacho Libre. Performance. Very satirical. (laughs) But awesome. I bet. Yeah. But basically the face kini, it's like this face covering, this mask that... um, 
that became popular in, in China and other other uh, Asian countries um, because women were looking for ways to to protect themselves from like the sun, especially like in very the very hot summers in in a lot of regions of China and Southeast Asia, um, Korea, Japan. And sometimes when you go to the beach, you know, you'll see people wearing like a face kini because they'd rather be able to dive into the water than like wear like a full hat over their heads. So, I mean, it's not it's not unlike wearing zinc on your face in some ways. Yes, true. Has that gone fashionable? Uh, that we have zinc was the for those who don't know what zinc was, it was just like this. It was super bright neon colored. You know, you put on your nose and stuff like this, and it was kind of a, a, a like a sunblock. Uh, but you got super like eighties with it, and just like the super bright neon colors uh, probably matched your spandex outfit. Explain a little bit about the cultural behind the scenes of not wanting sun on your face, especially for women. In Chinese, there's a saying like whiteness, you know, or paleness covers three, three bad traits or three ugly traits um, or three, you know, unvirtuous traits. So basically, I think throughout a lot of like Chinese history, um, traditionally, pale skin has been the standard or the beauty standard in China and in a lot of like neighboring countries like Japan and Korea as well, because it was some it because it symbolized wealth and uh, privilege since women who had paler skin didn't have to toil away in fields or um, or work like in, in labor related positions and, and men as well. But in Europe too, in other parts of the world, this was a predominant beauty standard until more recently. Is the face kini really taking off or are we just jesting here? It is. It truly is. I've seen it. I mean, even over here in Vancouver, I've seen it at least three times this summer. Um, but it has taken a new, taken on a new form. So it has evolved from you know that lucha libre mask to um, more of like a more of like a it, it's it's now like a a two piece. So there's like a hat that um, is all encompassing. It, it covers the sides of your face as well, and then there's almost like this veil type thing that you wear. Um, that you attach to the hat. So only your eyes are really showing and the veil hangs below, of course. Okay. So for those of you just listening to the audio version, you're going to want to go and watch the video where after the show, Crystal and I will both be trying on um, the face kinis that we own so that people at home can <laughs> see exactly what they look like. It can be hard to tell when it's audio only. Now, how has the luxury sector performed since China lifted those COVID restrictions? Well, as we discussed earlier, um, there was a bit of a, uh, a surge once China reopened. Um, I think that brands like um, Dior, Tiffany, Sephora, like a lot of the LVMH brands um, were reporting a bit of a, an uptick in sales um, with, with a few of them launching new flagships and new shops. Um, in light of like the good news of China's reopening. However, in the last few weeks, um, in the last few weeks, uh, China has shared more lackluster economic data. Um, and, you know, besides like the sluggish GDP as mentioned, um, we are facing rising levels of like unemployment as well. 
So there are some challenges ahead. Um, luxury brands will likely continue to perform well, but um, sales may sales. Sorry, luxury brands. Certain luxury brands have reported that they're they're continuing to perform well, but others have have mentioned, um, like Bulgari and Michael Kors, have mentioned that uh, sales are slowing. So some challenging times ahead, potentially. Is the luxury sector more insulated from a slowdown or are they average? Is there no change or would they potentially be more hard hit by an economic slowdown? That's a really good question. The luxury sector is quite diverse at this point. I mean, you have like your hard luxuries, like handbags, fine jewelry, um, uh, haute couture, and then you have um, like the petite luxuries or like little luxuries, like more cosmetics, um, lipsticks. Uh, so it's it's hard to say overall, but um, I I would imagine that if consumption, if consumer sentiment is um, is not as strong and consumption is falling, then we might see. Um, move towards more like lu- uh, sorry more little luxury purchases but that's just my my guess in western countries the pandemic gave a, quite a huge boost to a trend that has in my opinion sustained itself better than i thought it would which was remote work the digital no- nomad and, and the work from home kind of work life balance or lifestyles has this been a similar trend in China? Yeah, it definitely has been. Um, remote work was on the rise during the pandemic. And um, recently, 76% of Chinese respondents, um, younger Chinese respondents in a survey, in an employment uh, survey, said that they were willing to become digital nomads and not be tied down to any location. So that's that's quite an overwhelming number of um, young Chinese who are open to the idea of like remote work and digital, digital nomadism. Um, I think that a lot of this is also rising in the face of um, China's intense, you know, 996, like 9am to 9pm, six days a week, um, workaholic culture that many feel like they, they want to try and escape this kind of like white, white collar lifestyle. What, if any, do you know about the employer reaction to this? Are they willing? Is this something that they can entertain conversations around or does it feel like they are saying we don't necessarily love this idea and prefer everybody come in? I believe that companies have been, especially like, larger tech um, giants in China do expect most of their workers to return to the offices. Um, The Chinese government actually did begin warning employers that 996 practices are illegal um, in 2021. So they have, they have tried to make work working conditions um, a bit more humane for, for the sake of like younger workers. Um, However, However, I I do think that um, a lot of people, a lot of uh, millennials and Gen Z in China are still um, 
open to the idea of like digital nomadism. Um, and, and there are two kind of ways that this is two main, um, approaches to this that I'm seeing. So like some digital nomads who, um, might have access to visas, uh, or other citizenships, um, they will go abroad and move to like Portugal or Bali or, you know, um, go to New York for a few months and then, and then, um, elsewhere. And then there are also domestic digital nomads, which is really fascinating. So these Chinese workers who are moving to Yunnan, um, and other remote regions of China where living standards are, the quality of life is very high, but, um, the cost of living is, is a lot lower and they might take on even like more menial type jobs, um, you know, alongside doing like their pursuing their passion, uh, creative passions. Yeah. Side hustles. I like it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Crystal Tai, Senior Managing Editor at Jing Daily. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Everybody, of course, if you're listening to the audio only podcast version, don't forget we have the YouTube channel over at WPIC.co's YouTube channel. And for those of you watching us on the video and you need your hands and eyes for other things, don't forget we have the audio only podcast on all the podcast platforms, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it, we're there. But again, thanks very much from all of us at The Negotiation for listening in, and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.